Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill episode number 108, where we go back, back to, the to the past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com or subscribe to us via iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and by tuning in your field radio to the emergency channel. Uh, this uh, issue today was recommended by the one Kirk Spencer. He's at Big Five Army uh, on Twitter. And if you know who that is, then you know we're probably going to read a Big Army comic. And uh, that one is, this is an amazing title, you have to admit, Chris. It is. Savage Combat Tales featuring Sergeant Stryker's Death Squad number one. February 1975 cover date writer for two stories was Archie Goodwin. And those two stories, the art was by Al McWilliams and Jack Sparling. Letterer was Al Kupperberg. Editor is Larry Lieber. And the cover price, 25 cents. So we're going to talk, you know, we've touched on Archie Goodwin many, many times. Uh, especially, I think, during the episode about Creepy Number 1. Yeah. Which uh, I definitely reference in here somewhere. But uh, we're going to do as expanded a bio on this gentleman, this very important comics figure right here. Uh, he was born September 8th, 1937 in Kansas City, Missouri, and he and his family lived in many small towns along the Kansas-Missouri border, including Coffeyville. But he considered Tulsa, Oklahoma, where he spent his teen years at Will Rogers High School as his hometown. Goodwin moved to New York City to attend classes at what became the School of Visual Arts. First broke into comics, working as an assistant to Leonard Starr on the comic strip Mary Perkins on Stage. This was sometime around 1957. He worked for a brief time as an, assi- as an editorial assistant at Red Book Magazine before joining the Army. His first story written before he went into the Army was drawn by Al Williamson and Roy Krenkel. It was published in 1962, just after his discharge from the Army. Goodwin also drew the strip Hermit for Harvey Comics in 1962. A year later, he would contribute written stories to the first issue of Creepy by Warren Publications. With issue number two, he'd, become, he'd be credited as the editor and would soon edit the entire line of Warren Horror magazines. He worked for Warren between 1964 and 1967 as head writer and editor-in-chief of the entire line, including Creepy, Eerie, Blazing Combat, and Vampirella. For the last title, Archie provided much of the character's backstory and best-remembered stories. After his departure from Warren in 1967, Goodwin would occasionally contribute stories for the next 15 years, uh, and even returned for a short stint as editor in 1974. From 1967 to 1980, Goodwin wrote strips for King King Features Syndicate, including the daily strip Secret Agent X-9, drawn by Al Williamson. And we go over some of Archie Goodwin's work ghostwriting for comic strips in the Cosmic Treadmill episode 95, That's the creepy number one uh, episode that's in the archives. Goodwin found work at the major comics companies as both writer and editor, working for Marvel Comics on titles including Fantastic Four and Iron Man. He'd actually worked for Marvel since 1968, and according to Goodwin, when he entered Stan Lee's office to apply for a job, Lee was in the middle of writing an Iron Man story and handed him photostats of the pages he was working on for his writer's test. Goodwin speculated, I assume if he had been working on Sergeant Fury... I'd have been writing Sergeant Fury. 
Thank God he wasn't writing Millie the Model when I walked in. Mm-hmm. Now, he worked briefly for DC Comics during the 1970s, where he edited the war comics G.I. Combat, Our Fighting Forces, and Star-Spangled War Stories. In comic book artist number one by Tomorrow's Publishing, Archie would say, I think I maybe suffered from a short attention span a little bit, so I could do something for a year or two, but then I'd begin feeling the itch to move on. I always find new offers tempting. It's great if you're doing something that you really, really like, but it's also great to to somehow have something shiny and new waved in front of your face, too. While I had been doing freelance writing for Marvel, I got the offer from Carmine Infantino of DC to take over three of their war books that Joe Cubitt had been editing. Since he was taking on Tarzan and a couple of other projects, he didn't want to continue working full-time on those. I had been away from editing and away from war comics since I did Blazing Combat at Warren, so it was a tempting new opportunity. Archie replaced Julius Schwartz as editor of Detective Comics for one year. He said after doing the war books for about half a year, Carmine Infantino, the editorial director, said that Julius Schwartz was going to do strange sports stories again and wanted to give up one of his books, and it was Detective. So of all the, of all the DC characters, Batman was probably the only one that I liked best, so I jumped at the chance to do something with Batman. So he swapped out Detective for strange sports stories. I don't know if that's, uh, that's a strange <laughs> one. I guess he wanted to do something new. Uh, Goodwin wrote Batman, wrote the Batman and lead feature in Detective Comics several times and collaborated with such artists as Jim Aparo, Sal Amendola, Howard Chaikin, and Alex Toth. Goodwin's collaboration with Walt Simonson on the Manhunter backup feature in Detective Comics won several awards. In a 2015 interview with CBR.com, Walt Simonson said, Archie was an editor at DC at the time and gave me a few SF stories. And then he gave me a three-page story about a real event that happened at the Alamo. I look back at it, and it's not my best work, but I worked my ass off on it. I was drawing horses and buckskin in adobe buildings. I read the whole paperback book on a siege on the siege of the Alamo for this three-page story. I did not appreciate the significance of that job until years later when Archie mentioned it to me. Archie had been given detective comics, and he wanted to do a new backup story. The Alamo job convinced Archie that I could draw stories other than SF. He had come up with the idea of a backup feature named Manhunter, and he offered me the strip to draw. Manhunter was really an adventure strip. It wasn't quite superheroes. It was set in different locations around the world. He was trying to create something that was in contrast to Batman. The strip made me professionally. The series won six Shazam awards from a group called the Academy of Comic Book Arts. What that meant was I was better known by the time that strip was over and had offers of work. I wasn't out pounding the pavement the way I had been before, haunting the halls of D.C., talking to friends of mine looking for jobs. After Manhunter, I was offered work regularly, and a lot of it took. A lot of it I took. It was mostly stuff I wanted to do. I wanted to do comics. And Goodwin had this to say about the series. I think that Manhunter is just one of several projects I've worked on that I consider a highlight of my career. It is something that I may never be able to top in a lot of ways. To have done that and for DC to have given me the opportunity to do that was great. Yeah, the Manhunter was actually collected in a direct market book in the early 80s. In the early 80s, yeah. But yeah. it's never been reprinted, I don't think, has it? I don't think so. I don't really, think really so, yeah. yeah. Now, as we mentioned earlier, his time at DC was brief, just a little under two years. About this, Archie would say, One, I got an offer from Warren to come back and edit a couple of his titles, which I found interesting and wanted to try. At the same time, I also felt that DC was falling behind in terms of giving back original artwork to the creators. 
Marvel began doing it. Warren began doing it. Most other companies started doing it, and we could not get DC to return people's original artwork. They insisted on keeping it. So I began making it harder to work with a lot of the better artists, and again, being a thing I felt uncomfortable about, if I was getting an offer from someplace else where they would give back original artwork, which I felt should go back to the artist, then I certainly felt more comfortable about going in that, about going in that situation. Which we're not positive if true. Most other accounts have DC giving its artwork back before Marvel. And while Warren and Atlas Seaboard uh, did return artwork, most companies still did not. Most never returned artwork at any time. Yeah, like Gold Key and Dell, they they didn't return any of that stuff. That's all Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck for them. Certainly. Uh, But Archie must uh, be remembering something here. Uh, Some of the pieces might be out of order, or our information could be incorrect. Uh, We'll leave it it for you guys, uh, for your consideration. Your consideration. Something happened there. Uh, Luke Cage, the first African-American superhero to star in a self-titled comic book series, was created by Goodwin and artist John Romita Sr. in June 1972, the issue in question being Luke Cage, Hero for Hire number 1. While briefly writing the Tomb of Dracula series, Goodwin and artist Gene Cullen introduced the supporting character Rachel Van Helsing in Tomb of Dracula number 3, July 1972 cover date. Goodwin co-created with Marie Severin the first Spider-Woman as well as writing her first appearance in Marvel Spotlight number 32, February 1977 cover date. But before that, he wrote two stories in the first issue of Savage Combat Tales. Mm-hmm. So first, obviously, we get to the cover, and Al McWilliams drew the cover. His full name is Alden Spur McWilliams. He was born February 2nd, 1916 in New York City. By 1929, the family, dad, mom, and his younger sister had moved to Greenwich, Connecticut. Al McWilliams graduated from Greenwich High School in 1934, and that September began attending the New York School of Fine and Applied Arts. That later became the Parsons School for Design. Around 1935, he worked as an art assistant on Lyman Young's newspaper comic strip, Tim Tyler's Luck. In 1938, he began illustrating for pulp magazines, like Clues Detective Stories and Flying Aces. For the latter book, Al wrote and drew biographies of famed flyers in a single-page comic strip, They Had What It Takes is what it was called, and it ran for three years. His first comic book credit was the four-page feature Captain Frank Hawks, Air Ace, in Dell Comics' Crackerjack Funnies number 7. And I actually didn't have to correct an accent on that Crackerjack is how it was spelled. That's right. (laughs) That had a December 1938 cover date. Uh, This is when comics were uh, original work were just getting started, so these weren't just reprinted uh, strips anymore. Right. other early credits, all for Dell, included the feature The Crime Busters with Alan Brady. Uh, with Al Brady, I'm sorry, it wasn't the Dick Van Dyke guy. Uh, <laughs> in the funnies, Speed Bolton Air Ace and Stratosphere Jim and his Flying Fortress in Crackerjack Funnies. And the radio show spinoff, Gangbusters, in Popular Comics and Four Color. Some of these titles just, uh, they roll off the tongue, don't they? They, they do. Stratosphere Jim, easily. what yeah. happened to him? Uh, <laughs> Al enlisted in the U.S. Army on October 1st, 1942, fighting in such World War II battles as D-Day, the initial invasion of Normandy. For this, he was awarded the Bronze Star and Francis Croix de Guerre. Having stockpiled them before enlisting, or less likely finding time to write and draw while in service, he both wrote and drew the quality comics war-themed features Spitfire in Crack Comics and Atlantic Patrol, Pacific Patrol, and Secret War News in Military Comics, as well as other features. Al was discharged with honors in 1945. 
1946, he started drawing the detective feature Steve Wood in Quality's National Comics. And through the remainder of the decade, he also drew comics for companies including DS Publishing, Novelty Press, Hillman Periodicals, and Star Publications, with at least one romance story for Archie Comics. He drew interior art and covers for such pulps as All Western Magazine, Exciting Western, Rodeo Romances, Texas Rangers, and Zane Gray's Western Magazine, and the science fiction pulp Planet Stories, the sports-oriented Fight Stories, and the aviation-themed Wings. Hmm. From 1950 to 52, McWilliams primarily drew romance comics and crime comics for Lev, Cle- Lev Gleason Publications. Those are the uh, crime does not pay guys. Yeah. Uh, then in 1952, he and writer Oscar Lebeck created the sci-fi comic strip Twin Earth. At Twin Earths, and that ran through 1963. From 66 to 68, he drew the sea adventure strip Davy Jones, which is a spinoff of Sam Leff's Curly Curly Ko. Okay. <laughs> I don't know about Curly Ko. I don't know anything. No, about that. Yeah. I, I must have missed him, uh, or or her. I don't know. Uh, no. <laughs> McWilliams and and writer John Saunders' comic strip Dateline Danger that ran from 1968 to 74 introduced the first African American lead character of a comic strip, Danny Raven. Other comic strip work includes the Star Trek and Buck Rogers strips. He worked as an assistant on John Prentice's Rip Kirby in 1964 and 65, on Don Sherwood's Dan Flagg from 65 to 67, and on Leonard Starr's On Stage from 69 to 70. Uh, Don Sherwood is the guy parodied in the story, the success story in Creepy Number 1. Again, that's the one we discussed back in episode 95, available for you in the archives. Uh, Al, speaking of creepy, contributed art for two stories to Creepy Number 4 in 1965, and that same year began a relationship with Gold Key Comics, contributing to the comic book adaptation to the TV shows Boris Karloff's Tales of Mystery and Twilight Zone, as well as the titles Wild Wild West and Dr. Solar, Man of Adam, all through the 1960s. Williamson would also continue contributing to Creepy and then Eerie throughout the early 1970s, and then... He did this story in this comic book. Hmm. Now, um, the cover is a pretty stark image of a Nazi tank rolling up the street of some war-battered city, uh, moments away from rolling over a U.S. soldier, in fact. The tank itself is firing shells from two large guns, and a Nazi soldier is poking out of the top, firing a machine gun at the fellow running in the foreground. That guy is Sergeant Stryker himself, scrambling to grab a grenade lying on the ground. Yes, he says, I must reach that grenade. Nothing nothing less will stop the Nazi tank. Nothing. Uh-oh, so this starts our first story, Sergeant Stryker's Death Squad, Reborn in Battle. It was drawn, first of all, written by Archie Goodwin and drawn by Al McWilliams, and we just met the guy. Certainly. Now, the opening splash page shows several Nazi planes buzzing low over a village that's partially on fire. U.S. soldiers scramble below. One of them is our very own Sergeant Stryker. Caption reads, February 1943. Operation Torch is over. American forces have joined with the British and French in trapping Field Marshal Rommel's famed Africa Corps. But suddenly, unexpectedly, the Desert Fox counterattacks, and inexperienced U.S. troops reel in bitter defeat. Yet, in such moments are legends born. Legends such as that of Sergeant Stryker's Death Squad. 
Operation Torch was a military operation involving U.S. and British forces in North Africa from on November 6th through 12th, uh, November 6th through 12th, 1942. It was the first instance of the two militaries collaborating on a mission. Uh, America favored Operation Sledgehammer, hitting Europe hard and fast, destabilizing Nazi forces. The well-named operation, I have a feeling if we ever saw the uh, map for that, probably just a big <laughs> fist pounding down. Probably. <laughs> no, Britain didn't favor this for obvious reasons. At uh, Russia's suggestion, the U.S. and U.K. planned to attack French-controlled and therefore Nazi-controlled North Africa, uh, take away some uh, supply routes or cause some trouble for the Fuhrer. And it worked. But from the looks of things in this story, not everyone on the Axis side got that memo. This is the village of Sidu Rashid, near the Kasserine Pass. There, These are J-88 dive bombers, better known as Stukas. And this is Ben Stryker, late of Prairie Mission, Kansas, scrambling for his life. And Sergeant Stryker almost falls up some stairs and lurches into a building where a couple of G.I.s are, well, I mean, they're just kind of sitting there, really. Just chilling, just yeah. chilling. Uh, Stryker goes, Andy, are you all right? Over here, Ben. Me and the lieutenant are fine. But I sure do wish somebody remind those Jerry's that they're supposed to be finished in North Africa. I know, right? Jeez. (laughs) Now, uh, Jerry was a nickname given to Germans during the Second World War by soldiers and civilians in the Allied nations, uh, in in particular by the British. Uh, The nickname was originally created during World War I, but it didn't find common use until World War II. Uh, The name Jerry was probably derived from the Stahlhelm helmet of uh, the German army introduced in 1916, which was said by British soldiers to resemble a chamber pot or Jeroboam, a Jerry. Uh, the lieutenant has a phone receiver to his ear, and he's attempting to reach out by radio. What's the situation outside, Stryker? I haven't been able to raise battalion on this thing. Sergeant Bloom thinks they're softening us up for some kind of attack, sir. He's organizing the defense perimeter. Says we'll need every man. The lieutenant mentions four prisoners held in the cellar who were supposed to be sent back to the front line for court-martial proceedings. Instead, he's going to let him loose to join the fight. The lieutenant tells Andy and Sergeant Stryker to go on ahead, and he'll catch up. Uh, I get the feeling he's not going to catch up. Mm. Now, Andy and Ben (laughs) stay on the outskirts of town, Ben watching Andy closely the whole time. Just because I'm your girlfriend's little brother doesn't mean... Just then, a Stuka flies overhead and bombs the building they were just in. Oh my god, Ben! The lieutenant! And four others, Andy. Don't forget those poor devils trapped in the cellar. Uh, let's hear their crimes before we start calling them poor devils. You know what I mean? Let's, uh, devils I mean, before proven innocent. It might have been, right? might have been worth <laughs> it. Uh, Andy takes a couple of pot shots at something, uh, but Sergeant Stryker suggests he knock it off and join with the rest of the company. On the way, Sergeant Stryker sees the body of a woman lying across some rubble. She dead. This gives Sergeant Stryker a couple of flashbacks of his father delivering a complicated baby. So uh, we can infer that his dad did that for a living. I hope it wasn't a hobby. That would be kind of weird. <laughs> yeah, uh, moonlighted. In, in the flashback, uh, his papa Stryker says, Hold the light high, Ben. Steady. Sergeant Stryker, as a kid, goes, C- Can you do it, Dad? Save Mrs. Angstrom in the... And then later, Papa says, There, son, the most sacred thing in the world, human life, mother and baby, both alive. And his average is uh, .333, so this is a really big deal. Yeah, you're doing pretty good, nosing up now, good job. (laughs) 
Now, in the present combat scene, this gives uh, Sergeant Stryker to pause and think about what he's doing here. That's a fine time to start worrying about that now, buddy. <laughs> right? You're, you're already in the thing. You're there. Now. You're there. So, yeah. <laughs> now, they make it over to Sergeant Bloom's operating base, and there are soldiers firing away. Sergeant Bloom says, Stryker, kitten, find a spot on the double. Sergeant Stryker and Andy dash into position behind the firing line. I hear those German paratroopers are vets, Ben. They're combat elite. Oh, I'm ready for them, especially if it gets down to infighting. Look what I traded for one of those convoy jackets. He produces a black revolver with a long barrel. Stryker goes, looks like an old 45 revolver from WW1. Good weapon. Let's hope you won't need it, Andy. Yeah, I mean, maybe we can come to a peaceful solution after having just seen a lieutenant and four prisoners bomb not feet away from us. Sure. We'll work it out. Uh, <laughs> Sergeant Stryker thinks back to his girlfriend, Lori, also known as Andy's older sister. She says, Darling, it's like the world is falling apart. You drafted Andy enlisting. Now back before Sergeant Stryker was a sergeant, he goes, With Hitler in Europe, Pearl Harbor bombed, I guess we're needed all right. Only, how can I do it, Lori? Fighting. Killing other human beings. Yeah, they aren't even members of my family. Right? Lori says, Or being killed, Ben. Promise you'll take care of yourself, of Andy. Promise you'll bother to, you'll both come back to me. Uh, yeah, whatever you say. And, uh, you know, while we're promising things, if, uh, if I don't come back from war, just promise. I, I, I promise I didn't sleep with your sister, no matter what she said. Yeah, exactly. Filthy liar. And if I don't come back, I was going to give you $5 million. Just know that. And uh, a giant <laughs> ring. Right. Yes. And now the Nazi army is on the horizon. Uh, Andy and the men from Sergeant Bloom's company fire round after round, taking many Axis troops down. But Sergeant Stryker cannot fire his gun. How the heck did he make sergeant anyway? I mean, sheesh. Yeah. We'll find out in a moment. Uh, sergeant Stryker has his gun aimed and cocked, but he cannot pull the trigger. Thinks to himself, I, I can't shoot. I, I just can't. Sergeant Stryker thinks back to boot camp when he was learning to handle his issued rifle. And it seems like he handled it pretty well, uh, you know, against paper targets. Holy! Stryker! I've been in this outfit since the last war and never saw a shooting like that. Who taught you? Stryker, when he was still a private, goes, My, 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 my dad, uh, a small-town doctor in the Depression, was mighty poor. We, 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 we had good hunters to help keep food on the table. Well, it's made you a natural son. I hope not, Sergeant Bloom. My dad also taught me there's a difference between shooting game for supper and killing in cold blood. Yeah, I mean, in one instance, you eat the thing that you kill. Right. Let's hope. Uh, now, uh, <laughs> so we're figuring Sergeant Bloom here is also the drill sergeant, right? I don't know. I'm not even positive that was boot camp, to be honest with you, dude. Maybe it was summer camp, yeah. I have no idea, yeah. <laughs> uh, back at the present, there's a big baroom, and Sergeant Stryker is blown back. The Nazi tank is in town. It's spitting bullets every which way, flanked by a full detail of Nazi soldiers, and everyone runs for cover. But Sergeant Bloom is hit by enemy fire. Sergeant Stryker runs back for him. Andy, give me a hand. Gotta drag him to shelter. N no! Too late, Stryker! Take over for me! You, you can do it! Everyone else too green, but you, you're, you're the natural... Ugh. So that's how he made Sergeant. No, oh. makes sense. You gotta be wrong, Sergeant. I haven't even fired an enemy. I, I don't even if I can't. 
Sergeant Stryker sees a bunch of his men holed up in a shelled-out building a few hundred yards away, and while clutching Sergeant Bloom's helmet, calls out to them. You men, what are you doing? Don't bunch up in one building. Scatter before... Before what? <laughs> a tremendous balam and bone-shattering explosion answers that question. Dear Lord, no! Every last man... Andy, oh God, Andy! Andy is fine. He wound up separated from the others because he dropped his forty-five and ran back for it. Then the Nazi tank shoots him in the back. Aww. So Sergeant Stryker is tortured by his promise to Louise, uh, but though she did sort of put him on the spot right there, didn't she? You know, he thinks to himself, "I let you down, Lori, and you and Andy can't bring him back. But some way, somehow, I'll make it up. If it takes a whole war." Gonna start by stopping that tank, but I'll need more than this carbine. Sergeant Stryker makes his way back to the original command post where the lieutenant and the prisoners were bombed at the beginning of the story. He continues to think, the ruins of our command post might be something there. Bazooka, grenades, or what the... There are voices coming from the cellar. One of them says, no use, nothing badges. Another one says, keep at it, muzzlehead, or it'll all suffocate. So Sergeant Stryker heads over to where the voices are coming from. Listen, down there. Maybe I can help you. Sergeant Stryker searches the lieutenant's body and finds one unexploded grenade. Reasoning that there's enough carnage around, one other explosion shouldn't hurt, so he chucks it at the debris over the cellar door, and thus, the prisoners are freed. One of the guys says, Son of a gun! No wonder that door give me trouble! Somebody left a building on top of it! The other one goes, well, you can thank the guy who took it off, Dirk. I'm going to be pretty kind of busy getting my tail out of this war. Sergeant Stryker has his gun trained on the freed prisoners, which is an interesting bargaining tactic, though it's probably pretty smart. Yeah, for the first time, he's he's doing something kind of smart. (laughs) (laughs) Sure, you can run. Maybe straighten the Jerry's. And they ain't taking prisoners. Might be best to throw in with me. There's a tank I mean to get. You resurrected us from the dead, friend. I suppose it's the least we can do, particularly since we have no other choice. Right, Ice? Lee? Turk? And Turk says, Uh, if we did have a choice, Duke, it's gone now. Here comes that son of a gun. The tank is rolling up the street, firing indiscriminately. Sergeant Stryker directs the men to get some weapons, and it's here we learn their names and specialties. There's Lee Shigeta, judo expert. He flips a Nazi soldier and gets his rifle. Duke Ripley, circus acrobat. Leaps out of a window onto a bad guy's head and takes his gun. Turk Enkrum, the pro wrestler. Knocks two Axis soldiers' heads together, uh, so we're going to assume that he gets two guns. I guess so, yeah. And (laughs) Ice Marco the gangster. He just takes Andy's forty-five revolver off his corpse. Ah, that's pretty easy. He even says... Not bad. The others risked their necks for hardware. I just found mine. Whoever got pulped by that tank sure don't need it anymore. Hey! Sergeant Stryker grabs Ice Marco by the wrist. Find something else, Ice. There's a prior claim on this pistol. Right, and uh, that guy died. Do you not know the rules of war, Sergeant? That's sort of like how it works. Find your keepers. Yeah. Caption reads, But once armed, there are ten tons of tank to be faced, plus veteran paratroops conducting their building-to-building sweep. But a building swept can be reoccupied. 
before prisoners, we're just going to call these guys the, the death squad now, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, now, they pop up from a building and fire into the backs of Nazi paratroopers and the tank. A Nazi pops his head out of the tank's turret. Duke jumps onto the tank from above and shoots him dead. Ice is ready to chuck a grenade into the tank and be done with it, but Sergeant Stryker has some other ideas. Ice, no grenades. I want this machine in working order. And maybe gift-wrapped while you're at it, Stryker. If you can, you know, find the materials in the war zone, then uh, sure, why not? Do it, come on. (laughs) Don't ask. (laughs) Uh, Sergeant Stryker piles into the tank and realizes he can't use it, which is why he didn't (laughs) get in there. Uh, And there are forces advancing on them. And Lee goes, I have had some small experience with American Army, Sergeant. Seems they know how to use the thing just fine. It rolls down the road, (laughs) slaying Nazi forces by the dozens. I mean, this thing is just peeling off rounds from every place a gun can stick out. It's ridiculous. We we do know that the sergeant has trouble pulling triggers. Right, yeah. He had trouble. uh, (laughs) We even see that somebody's hanging out of the top, uh, firing away at Jerry's here. So Mm. every which way, we're shooting stuff. Now, Turk walks alongside the tank, murdering enemies face-to-face. I mean, you know, still with a rifle, but uh, he's not inside the tank. Yeah, he's he's looking at them in in the eye, supposedly. He says, hey, son of a gun, there's ain't no more of them. We won! Just then, a Nazi hiding out in some rubble takes aim at Turk. But Sergeant Stryker fires with Andy's forty-five and neatly kills that Nazi. He thinks to himself, Lord, Dad, I've slain my first man. Now I'm a killer. Kids, they grow up so fast. It feels like just yesterday. Duke goes, it's all over and we are still alive and kicking. Know what that means? We started as jailbirds today, but now, believe it or not, we're blasted heroes. Well, no, Duke, you still have to be arraigned for having relations with that camel, but mm. we'll put a pin in that till later. Uh, Sergeant Stryker sits a few feet away from Andy's corpse, regarding it sadly. Thinks to himself, war, what a thing. It seemed to have been it turned those four into better men, but what about me? Have I become worse? Eh, six of one, half a dozen to the other, really. What's sure. The difference? Caption says, but there's no easy answer to Ben Stryker's question. Only an uncertain future, where the next issue, the Death Squad, earns its name. So, like, the 150 deaths they caused right now don't count? I guess, you know, you don't become a squad until you're 200. That's the thing. Oh, you know, okay. It's all okay. technicalities. <laughs> now, that was our lead story. Mm-hmm. We still have another to discuss here, and that is Bounty. We have uh, written by uh, Archie Goodwin with art by Jack Sparling. So let's meet him. John Edmund Sparling was born June 21st, 1916 in Winnipeg, Manic- Manitoba, Canada. He moved to the United States as a young child, receiving early arts training at the Arts and Crafts Club in New Orleans. He later attended the Cochran School of Art in Washington, D.C. He worked briefly as a gag cartoonist for the New Orleans Item Tribune. On January 29, 1940, Sparling, along with writer William Lass, they debuted the comic strip Hap Hopper, Washington Correspondent, which was distributed by United Features Syndicate. Sparling was the artist until 1943, and he was succeeded by Al Plastino. Sparling's next comic strip was Claire Voyant, which premiered May 10, 1943 in the New York newspaper PM and ran until the paper folded in 1948. From the 1950s to the 1970s, Sparling provided art for a variety of publishers, including Harvey Comics and to Charlton Comics adaptations of The Six Million Dollar Man and The Bionic Woman. 
Sparling also worked for Classics Illustrated, drawing adaptations of Robin, Robin Hood and Mark Twain's Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. Sparling drew biographic comic books featuring Adlai Stevenson II, Lyndon B. Johnson, and Barry Goldwater for Dell Comics. DC began a new direction for House of Mystery series with issue number 175. That was July-August 1968 cover date. And the series' host, Kane, was created by Sparling and Joe Orlando with writer Bob Haney. At DC Comics, Sparling drew Secret Six, the Eclipso feature in House of Secrets, and the Unknown Soldier feature in Star Spangled War Stories. He worked with writer Denny O'Neill on The Witching Hour and on Challenges of the Unknown. For Western Publishing's Gold Key Comics, he co-created the superhero Tiger Girl with Jerry Siegel in 1968 and the one-shot tie-in to the Microbots toy line. Uh, and also illustrated comic book adaptations for the television series Family Affair, The Outer Limits, and Adam-12. And right around here, he drew this story. Hey, all right. Yeah, the uh, opening splash page shows a bunch of Japanese bombers flying under a very bright sun. Just beneath the sun, a small group of U.S. military planes, and uh, one of them has broken from the pack. Yeah, the pile of that one says, Start writing that bonus check, Chang Kai-shek. Uncle Wade's got another meatball in his sights. Yeah, the flight leader goes, Jessup, say with your wingman, you so-and-so. Jessup? (laughs) Caption reads, the bombers are Mitsubishi K-221s. To the Japanese, they are instruments for widening their hold on the Asian mainland. To the Chinese, they are destroyers, raining death upon them. To three flying tigers, diving out of the sun, they are the enemy and must be stopped. But to the fourth, they are something different entirely. They are nothing but bounty. Claire L. Chenault was a retired U.S. Army Air Corps officer who had worked in China since August 1937, first as a military aviation advisor to Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek in the early months of the Sino-Japanese War, then as director of the Chinese Air Force Flight School. China had aircraft and ordnance supplied by Russia, but lacked the fighter pilots for fi- fighter pilots for a real air force. Chiang Kai-shek asked Chenault to petition the U.S. for some airmen to fly their planes. He formed the Flying Tigers, the first American volunteer group of the Chinese Air Force. They operated from 1941 to 42. Yeah, this group consisted of three fighter squadrons of around 30 aircraft each and trained in Burma before the American entry into World War II with the mission of defending China against Japanese forces. Now, they could not act officially on behalf of the United States because we had not formally declared war. Pearl Harbor hadn't yet happened, so that's kind of why I think that this uh, bounty even was able to happen, because they're not acting as uh, Army uh, Air Force people. Certainly. Now back to the story. Wade Jessup, he seems to be a, a hotshot pilot. He uh, blows one of the Japanese planes clear out of the sky. Wade Jessup follows the black spiral of smoke that marks the bomber's death plunge, grunting in satisfaction as it flares against China's soil, until he finds the bomber has an escort. One of the Japanese fighters has gotten behind Wade and is firing on his tail. The Zero's 20mm cannons and 7.7mm machine guns pound Jessup's ship. The P-40 shudders, but its heavy, rugged construction takes it. Hmm, I wonder how its mileage is. <laughs> I gotta find out. Yeah, resale. Yeah. Uh, then Jessup's wingman, Lou Stoneham, catches up, exploiting, as Colonel Chair Chenault has taught him, the P-40's best feature, its speed in a dive. 
Stoneham fires on the Japanese plane, and it takes off. He says, never catch that speedy so-and-so now. Anyway, flight leader signal and return to base. Not a bit too soon, Stoney. My oil pressure is falling fast. Wade's plane seizes up, and he has a mild crash landing into base. He's fine, but the plane is toast. The flight leader rolls up in a jeep. Yes, a dag-nabbit plane's a wreck. You know what they say, flight leader. Any landing you walk away from is a good one. Wade casually lights a cigarette while getting chewed out. Now, when one one of the not the okay, the flight leader says, "Not not when the Tigers only have about fifty operational aircraft at a given time." That zero scored on you because you were too busy pinpointing where your kill went down. You bet I was. The Chinese government pays a five hundred dollar bounty for every Jap plane, but only if they can find the wreckage. What a cocky... <laughs> We're fighting a war, Jessup. Not guaranteeing your Calcutta bank account gets fat on blood money. Shh, technically there is no war underway, dude. You know, let's keep it on a QT. Speak for yourself, hero. I plan to come out of this with more than warm handshakes from the local coolies. You're coming out with a fat lip. Flight leader grabs Jessup's soldier to sock him one, but Wade flattens him with one punch. And he says... I outshoot and outfly everybody in the squadron. You think it's it'll be different when it came to out punching? Well, none of those words are really words, but uh, I guess he, his point is well. Taken. I get the point. Yeah, it's a, yeah. whatever. English is not his thing. <laughs> out Englishing, he can't do. That's why. <laughs> later on. Stoneham comes upon Jessup drinking in the barracks. Sit down, Stony. Have a beer. Where have you been? Over communications, Wade. Bunch of us were listening to Radio Tokyo. Seems they're fuming about losses from, from our hit-and-run tactics. Say, if we keep fighting like guerrillas, we'll be treated like them. I don't care what the Japanese think, Wingman. Long as they keep sending over those $500 sitting ducks for me. Pickens may be rough for next mission. Call board is down for escorts to, to a bomb... Call board is down to escorts to a bomber flight over Burma. Now, Radio Tokyo, in this instance, must mean actual radio broadcast from Japan, perhaps even intercepted military chatter. The only other reference to a Radio Tokyo was Tokyo Rose, the name given to a series of Japanese women broadcasting propaganda to U.S. soldiers, primarily about how unfaithful their women were being back home. Indeed, the next morning begins a boring escort detail with little hope of bounties for Wade. But then some bandits swoop in on the entourage. They're neat, Stody. Nakahama K-221s. Watch them on the turns and climbs, and we're more than a match for them. Wade shoots one plane into smithereens. See? Wade, turn back. Another fighter's hitting the bombers while we chase these three. Coming, wingman. Then he thinks to himself, but not while a second 500 clams is still in my sights. I'm thinking this isn't going to end in his favor. It seems like he's pushing things, I'll tell you what. Uh, Wade shoots his target until it's a ball of fire, then turns back to join Stoney. But he's too late. Stoney's plane is ablaze, plummeting earthward. Stoney! Too bad, kid. You were a good wingman, but I grew up too hungry to cry over anything on a day when I've made a thousand buck Zeros! Under the hammering of two foes. The P-40's superior armor finds its limit. She's breaking up. Time for Uncle Wade to ditch. 
Oh, that's just what my Uncle Wade did to my Aunt Veronica. Oh, man, bad memories. It hit me where it hurt. <laughs> Jessup blows the emergency escape hatch and parachutes safely away from his smoldering plane. Wade lands below and is immediately surrounded by some Chinese citizens. With guns. Hmm. Phew. Thought for a second you guys were Japs. What are you, gorillas? Bandits? No matter. Check out the back of my jacket. See? I'm a flying tiger. All of the Chinese men fire their guns into Wade's back. Don't you read? I'm a flying tiger. Dead. Aw, the men crowd around Wade's dead body, and we, we see his face is frozen in horror. Take his jacket long. That will be proof enough. True, and we shall eat well on 5,000 yen the Japanese now offer as a bounty for flying tiger pilots. You know, they probably could do well also just translating into English. Right? They seem to speak yeah, perfect they, English. Yeah, they're so. doing pretty good. Yeah. yeah. So that actually completes the uh, issue number one of one of the best titled comics we've ever worked on. i got to say it again. Savage Combat Tales featuring Sergeant Striker's Death Squad. You know what that reminds me of, Chris? This might only be interesting to you and me, but remember that Young Ones episode where uh, Vivian is reading uh, Rick's comic book? And it's it's some title like that, right? Yes, it's, it is. It's yeah. like it's like the the bastard squad and the death of something or other. But <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't know. It really made me think of that. So uh, had a good time with it. And uh, now we're sure. going to tell you a little bit about the confusing. If you do see the cover of this, you might see a big Atlas logo on it and wonder. Wait a minute. I know. Wasn't them. that Marvel? Wasn't that Marvel? <laughs> what is going on? Well, we will explain what that's about right here. Uh, Marvel Comics founder Martin Goodman sold the company in 1968, but stayed on there until 1972. He created Seaboard Periodicals, which opened its offices on June 24, 1974. And Atlas was what he called the Comics Division, just to annoy collectors forever, pretty much. (laughs) Uh, To differentiate this line from the 1950s Atlas Comics, which were published by what would become Marvel, collectors call this line, which we will show is not that robust anyway, Atlas Seaboard. Uh, So some reports at that time suggested Martin Goodman was angered that Cadence, the new Marvel owners, had reneged on a promise to keep his son Charles Chip Goodman as Marvel's editorial director. Writer Gary Friedrich thinks otherwise. He said, I never really felt that Martin did it for that reason. I think he did it to make money and that he thought with Larry in charge and paying good rates that he could do it. Now, he probably wouldn't have minded if he could have taken a bite out of Marvel's profits, but I don't think it was done out of revenge. I think Martin was too smart for that. Marvel art director John Romita, however, believed Chip was supposed to take his place, but that part of it must not have been on paper, because as soon as Martin was gone, they got rid of Chip. That's why Martin started Atlas Comics. It was pure revenge. Although Chip Goodman was also in charge of the Seaboard comics, he went. He was a lightweight in making decisions about them, according to Rovin. Uh, historian and one-time Marvel editor-in-chief Roy Thomas would recall, one of the problems was just being Martin Goodman's son. I don't think that Martin respected Chip very much. He put Chip in charge, but would treat him with less than benign contempt in front of other people. Martin was a little cruel sometimes. Uh, magazine management staffer Ivan Prashkin wrote a story, The Boss's Son, that fictionalized Martin's relationship with Chip somewhat unflatteringly. It was published in the February 1970 issue of Playboy. 
Prasker expected he might be fired, but instead he was rewarded with his own editorship of a magazine, as Martin was apparently more impressed that one of his staffers was published in the premier men's magazine than with any insult made to his son. So that might tell you something about their relationship. Yeah. Uh, Goodman hired Warren Publishing veteran Jeff Rovin to edit the color comic book line, and, and writer-artist Larry Lieber, brother of Marvel editor-in-chief Stan Lee, as editor of this black-and-white comics magazines. In a 1987 interview with the New York Times, Jeff Rovin said, I was working for Warren Publishing founder Jim Warren, running his mail-order division, Captain Company, and just starting to edit the black-and-white car comics magazine, Creepy, and I'd edited comics for DC and Skywald. Several weeks after answering the ad, I received a call from Martin Goodman. I was one of several people Martin interviewed, and I got the job because I'd had experience not only in comics but in mail order, the latter of which was to contribute significantly to Seaboard's cash flow. Sharing editorial duties on the comics was writer-artist Larry Lieber, who Martin had long wanted to transplant from under the shadow of Larry's brother. Larry ended up handling about a quarter of Atlas's output, similar, primarily the police, western, and war comics, and color anthologies of horror stories. Steve Mitchell was the comics production manager and John Chilly, the black and white magazine's art director. Goodman offered an editorial position to Roy Thomas, who had recently stepped down as Marvel Comics editor-in-chief, but Thomas turned it down, recalling in 1981 that, I didn't have any faith in his lasting it out. The field was too shaky for a new publisher. In a 1999 interview, Larry Lieber would recall, when I went there, Martin put out two kinds of books. He was putting out color comics, and he was, go- he was also going to put out black and white comics like Warren and Marvel. Now, I knew nothing about black and white comics, right? My only experience was in color comics. Jeff Rovin came, with- came from Warren, and he knew nothing about color comics. Martin, unfortunately, put Jeff in charge of all the color comics and put me in charge of all the black and white books. It was an unfortunate thing, and basically what happened was that Jeff's books didn't turn out so well. Martin had to pay high freelance rates because otherwise nobody would work for a new and unproven company. It didn't work out too well, and Jeff finally left angrily or something, and I had to take over all his books. At this point, business was bad, and I tried to do what I could. One of the things I had to do was to cut rates and tell people they were going to make less money, which was not an enviable position. Yeah, to that point, Atlas Seaboard had offered some of the highest rates in the industry, plus return of the artwork to artists and author rights to original character creations. These are relatively luxurious conditions attracted such top names as Neil Adams, Steve Ditko, Russ Heath, John Severin, Alex Toth, and Wally Wood, as well as such up-and-coming talents as Howard Chaikin and Rich Buckler. A total of 23 comics titles and five comics magazines were published before the company folded in late 1975. No title lasted more than four issues. And hey, there's so few of them, let's just name them all right here. (laughs) There was Barbarians featuring Iron Jaw had one issue. Blazing Battle Tales featuring Sergeant Hawk had one issue. The Brute, three issues. The Cougar, two issues created by Steve Mitchell. Demon Hunter, one issue. The Destructor went four issues, art by Steve Ditko and Wally Wood inked the first two issues. Fright featuring the Son of Dracula went one issue. <laughs> it's good names. Uh, right. Grim Ghost had three issues. Hands of the Dragon, one issue. Iron Jaw, four issues. Morlock 2001, three issues. Number three was retitled Morlock 2001 and the Midnight Men. Phoenix went four issues with the last issue retitled Phoenix dot 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 the Protector. 
Planet of the Vampires had three issues. Police Action featuring Lomax and Luke Malone had three issues. Savage Combat Tales featuring Sergeant Striker's Death Squad thankfully had three issues, so now we know how they, we'll find out how they get their name. That's right. Yeah, they that, earn their name. At least in the second one, yeah. <laughs> uh, the Scorpion had three issues. Tales of Evil, three issues. The Bog Beast was in number two. Man Monster and the Bog Beast in number three. Target had three issues. Number two were titled as John Target dot 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 Man Stalker on cover. I think that might have been trying to capitalize on one of Chris's favorite characters from Charlton right there. Uh, <laughs> Tiger Man had three issues. Vicky had four issues. Those were reprints of Tower Comics' Tippy Teen. We had Suspense featuring the Tarantula ran three issues. West in Action featuring Kid Cody and the Comanche Kid went one issue. And we wrap up with Wolf the Barbarian, which went four issues. And then for their magazines, there were just five of them. There was Devilina, two issues. Gothic Romances, one issue. Movie Monsters had four issues. Thrilling Adventure Stories had two issues with uh, Tiger Man appearing in number one. And Weird Tales of the Macabre had two issues. The Bog Beast appeared in number two. Mm-hmm. Now we'll bring it back to Archie Goodwin here. Uh, in 1976, Goodwin replaced Jerry Conway to become the eighth editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics. The understanding was that this was a temporary situation until a permanent replacement could be found. While Goodwin was editor-in-chief, Marvel would secure the rights to publish the Star Wars films comic adaptation and tie-in series, which then sold phenomenally well at a point when the comics industry was in severe decline. Goodwin recalled about the Star Wars comic book, he says... That really worked, but I can't take any credit for it. Roy Thomas is the one who brought it to Marvel, and he had to push a little bit to get them to do it. He followed Thomas in, adap- in adapting the Star Wars characters into an ongoing comic book with artist Carmine Infantino, as well as continuing the story in a daily comic strip. Goodwin wrote the strips under his own name, although many websites and other sources erroneously claimed that he used the pseudonyms R.S. Helm and Russ Helm. Writer Mark Avanier corrected the matter by stating Archie did write the Star Wars comic strip, as well as other Star Wars material, but only under his own name. Russ Helm was a completely different person writing under his own name. At the end of 1977, Archie quit his position as editor-in-chief at Marvel to be replaced by Jim Shooter. He'd had that position for 19 months. According to Jim Shooter, Stan Lee had returned after hiatus to get get more personally involved with the comics which Archie didn't like, and Goodwin didn't run a very tight ship, allowing lots of delays and spelling mistakes uh, through, which Stan didn't like. Stan had spoken with Marvel Comics' new president, Jim Galton, and they decided they wanted to give Jim Shooter a stronger administrative role. He was just an editor at Marvel at the time, but he was gaining a lot of attention, while making Goodwin a vice president with a big pay raise. When they offered the new position to Archie, however, he turned it down. So Marvel decided to fire Goodwin and make Jim Shooter the new EIC, effective January 1978. Stan decided that this should be announced at a hastily arranged Christmas happy hour, arranged by the staff. Awkward! That was not the most politically best time, but uh, he still did plenty of work. Archie wrote comic book adaptations for Marvel of the two Star Wars sequels, as well as other science fiction films such as Close Encounters of the Third Kind and Blade Runner. In 1979, Goodwin wrote an adaptation of the first Alien movie uh, named Alien, the illustrated story, which was drawn by Walt Simonson and published by Heavy Metal Magazine. That was a magazine produced by National Lampoon publisher Leonard Mogul. In a 2013 interview, Walt Simonson remembered, 
Because of the way things worked out, the collaboration, getting to work with Archie, getting to work with John Workman, because we were able to do a four-color book and because of the cooperation we got from 20th Century Fox and everything else that all came together, it was really one of the best experiences of my comic career. I'd been doing comics for seven or eight years at that point, and even then I had some experiences that I liked and some I wasn't so crazy about, but this is one of the high points of my career. After Marvel Comics passed on publishing the American incarnation of Heavy Metal themselves, Jim Shooter was charged with producing an alternate title, which would become Epic Illustrated. It was initially edited by Rick Marshall, but uh, Shooter approached publisher Stan Lee to urge a replacement. He says, I told Stan, there's one guy who could do this. I don't know if we can get him. He said, who's that? Archie Goodwin. The reason I didn't think we could get him is because he used to be my boss, and I didn't know how he'd feel about coming to work and me being his boss. Goodwin was at, was at the time still working for Marvel as a writer, and Shooter recalls concocting a plan whereby the company, quote, pretended that Archie reported the stand. <laughs> he says, in fact, I was doing all the paperwork and all the employee reviews and the budgets so that Goodwin would have the illusion of not working for his successor. Archie was hired as Epic's editor in the fall of 1979. Shooter approached Goodwin after the moderate success of the Epic Illustrated magazine to produce a full-fledged line of creator-owned comics, which we know as Epic Comics. Goodwin initially balked at the additional workload, but when Shooter turned the line over to Al Milgram, Goodwin reportedly said, that's my line, and (laughs) and ultimately accepted the editorship. Goodwin introduced the American translation of Katsuhiro Tomo's Akira and published English translations of the work of Jean Girard, who we know as Mobius. Yeah, that shooter is a smart fella, I think. I he think, is. I think he knew how to deal Very with Very savvy, yeah. yeah. Uh, Goodwin returned to DC Comics as an editor and writer in 1989. He wrote the graphic novel Batman Night Cries, painted by Scott Hampton and published in 1992. And throughout the 1990s, Goodwin edited a number of Batman projects, including the Elseworlds miniseries Batman Thrill Killer and the Alan Grant-written Kevin O'Neill illustrated parody one-shot Batman Might Fall. Goodwin co-wrote with Dennis O'Neill the 1991 crossover event Armageddon 2001, and he edited Batman, Legend of the Dark Knight, and Asriel. Among Goodwin's most notable last editorial projects were Starman, written by James Robinson and first published by DC in 1994. Batman, Legends of the Dark Knight, Halloween Special Number 1, December 1993 cover date, and Batman, The Long Halloween by Tim Sale and Jeff Loeb. Where it's also part of what he did, edited. Uh, Loeb said that Goodwin inspired their portrayal of Gotham Police Jim Gordon in The Long Halloween and its sequel, Batman Dark Victory, while Robinson, who considered Goodwin both a mentor and a close personal friend, continued to list Goodwin as a guiding light on later issues of Starman. And if you look at a picture of Archie Goodwin, you can see that he makes a pretty darn good Commissioner Gordon, I tell you. Yeah. Uh, he has the right mustache. Uh, Archie Goodwin died in New York City of cancer on March 1st, 1998, after battling the disease for 10 years. Now, for awards, he had uh, won the 1973 Shazam Award for Best Writer, the the Dramatic Division, uh, and Best Individual Short Story, which was the Himalayan Incident that appeared in Detective Comics number 437. Also, the 1974 Shazam Award for Best Writer in the Dramatic Division, uh, for Best Individual Story for Cathedral Perilous, that was in Detective Comics number 441, and Best Individual Feature-Length Story for Goddard Damarang, that appeared in Detective Comics number 443. 
all for the Manhunter stories that ran between uh, issues 437 and 443 of Detective Comics, all with art by Walter Simonson. Uh, a rare comic book character whose death has uh, never been reversed. Yeah, I'm not even sure if they ever had a... They had a Manhunter in the 80s, didn't they? But I can't think of a time I've seen it more recently that wasn't the... Uh... Elseworlds. Anyway, they they had one who took this this uh, this Manhunter's outfit as part of Kurt Busiek's power company. Oh, but it wasn't the same fellow. It was the same costume, but a different uh, different fellow. Power company, you say? Uh. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> uh, he won the 1992 Bob Clampett Humanitarian Eisner Award, and Goodwin was named best editor by the Eisners in 1993. In 1998, he entered the Eisner Hall of Fame. An Archie Goodwin Memorial Award has been set up at the School of Visual Arts. That's an award given to the, to a top student in his or her junior year. In 2007, Goodwin was inducted into the Oklahoma Cartoonist Hall of Fame in Pauls Valley, Oklahoma, located in the Toy and Action Figure Museum. Archie Goodwin was one of the best-loved people in comics, and we've never read or heard a bad word about him. About Archie, Carmine Infantino told Comic Book Artist Magazine... In the passing of Archie Goodwin, the comics world has lost one of the best writers and editors in existence. More to the point, we lost a very good man. After he'd passed, Peter David wrote on PeterDavid.net, a pretty funny story. One evening, pretty much everyone had gone home. Archie was still seated at his desk, finishing up some stuff and preparing to leave. And someone, I don't remember who, who had already exited the bullpen area, clicked a switch on the wall and announced loudly to Archie, The floor is now electrified. Without missing a beat, Archie gathered up his belongings, climbed on top of his desk, and proceeded to depart the bullpen via the furniture. Like a mountain goat, he clambered over desks, file cabinets, etc., working his way across. He only had one mishap. At one point, he stepped on a thatched desk chair, and his foot went right through the seat. But he recovered quickly, managed to extract his foot before it came in contact with the dreaded electrified floor, and continued his odyssey. Eventually, he made it all the way to safety without once receiving an imaginary jolt from the imaginary current. Next morning, Jim Shooter could be heard calling loudly, What the hell happened to my chair? Blank looks and shrugs were the only answer he got. (laughs) Uh, Jim Warren of Warren Publication naturally said, uh, The Archie Goodwin I knew as my editor, writer, art director, artist, and production manager, manager was a curious combination of capability and calmness. He was a natural. He made it look easy. To me, he was the Joe DiMaggio of comics, a champion with dignity. Archie Goodwin's widow, Ann T. Murphy, was quoted in the Warren Companion as saying, Archie had an interesting encounter in the late 50s while he was at Red Book. He got to turn down Andy Warhol, which he often joked about. But he was quite right because Andy's work wasn't right for the magazine, and Archie had specifically been sent out because he, he was the junior art department employee, and no one else wanted to see Andy Warhol. They said he's got lots of pretty good shoe drawings and other strange stuff on foil. So Archie went out to look at the portfolio as a courtesy and to tell Andy they couldn't use him because they had no shoe pieces coming up. Archie, fresh out of art school, had been exposed to You Don't Trace in his classes, so he actually gave Andy a little lecture on doing his own drawings instead of just tracing on silver foil, which he viewed as swipe. We laughed about that for years, like all Archie's stories. It was more of a joke on him than one aimed at Andy. I don't think Andy was too upset uh, Probably not. down the yeah. line. Yeah, uh, I shared this story with Jeanette Kahn, who used to be a friend of Andy's. 
And finally, in 2013, Mark Wade would say, I have been in this industry for my entire adult life, and to this day, no one in the industry, uh, no one in the industry, everyone loves like they love, um, everyone loves like they love Archie. He is universally regarded as the most likable guy who ever worked in the industry, and one of the most talented writers and editors ever. Yeah, that that has a little uh, a case of too much verbatim, but that yes, the point of that Mark Wade was saying people people dig the guy. People loved him. We yes. definitely see that too, uh, not just for this piece, but anytime people mention him, it's always glowing, glowing praise for his writing and editing. Uh, and frankly, I didn't even really know that he had uh, cartooning uh, history. Background, oh, yeah. I guess I had forgotten or something. But uh, this this really uh, brought it. In for me to that uh, he did it all soup to nuts. Man was certainly was you know living and breathing comics and periodicals. So uh, definitely lost something huge there. And uh, for quite frankly, I think the industry has never quite recovered from that loss. Sure, but that is a something for you to take task with if you want to write to me and tell me how wrong I am about it, or if you have your own memories of of uh, Archie Goodwin, or you want to talk about this war comic Atlas Seaboard or anything else. You can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Cosmic T-Mill History. We're on Twitter at Cosmic T-Mill, and I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. You can check out our weekly writings on new DC Comics, as well as some retro stuff at uh, weirdsciencedccomics.com. And you can check out Chris's personal blog, chrisandinfiniteearth.com, where he reviews a new DC, different DC comic every day of the week from any pure point in DC's history. And uh, I've been really doing the Lord's work over there. Some great, <laughs> great ones from the uh, deep dives in the bins. So be sure to check it out. Chris is at infiniteearth.com. Certainly. You can also check out weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com. That is the show site, of course, where you'll find all of our show notes for most of the episodes. And uh, you'll find a chronological listing of every episode of all of our programs, the Cosmic Treadmill, Weird Comics History, some other fun stuff for you, too. And uh, we want to, uh, before we leave, we want to thank Kirk Spencer for the suggestion. We both had a, a lot of fun with this. Uh, this isn't either of our wheelhouses, no. really. So uh, it's always fun to uh, it's always fun to expand our horizons and check out something we ordinarily wouldn't have. We, we need suggestions for things like these because we're not yes. we're not going to stumble on this. Uh, <laughs> and it was it was not. good to do an Atlas Seaboard as well as to do a long form on Archie Goodwin, who certainly absolutely some bio- biographical love from uh, everyone. But uh, I think that's all we got from this week, Chris. Got anything else for him? That'll do it. Until next time, folks, I want you to keep it on the treadmill and aimed at those Jerry's. Hoorah! Casualties of war. Casualties of war. As I approach the barricade, where's the enemy? Who do I invade? Pull us a test one, pull a Best grip, take it out of your flame with a bag full of clips. Cause I got a family to wait for my return. To get back home is my main concern. I'ma get back to New York in one piece. But I'm better than saying that as hot as the city streets. Sky lights up like fireworks blind me. Bullets whistling over my head remind me. President Bush said attack. Flashback to numb, I might not make it back. Missile hits the area screens. Wake me up from a war of dreams. Heat up the M16. Base training. Train for torture. Take no prisoners. And I just caught you addicted to murder. Send more body bags. They can't identify. I'm leaving the names at. I get a brush when I see blood dead bodies on the floor. Cats of cheese of war. Cats of cheese of war. Cats of cheese of war.